the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. In addition to taking care of one another inside the church, what if we developed a lifestyle of taking care of the most needy outside the walls of the church? How would that change the community and our city? Bob Moffat, president and founder of Harvest Foundation in Phoenix, along with Pastor Julian Gibb, talk with pastors and leaders about how sacrificial love by those in the church to those in need outside the church has helped people see and embrace Jesus Christ. It's that demonstration of Jesus' greatest commandment that we'll hear more about today on The Kingdom and Its Stories. Welcome very much uh, to this broadcast. Uh, Drive time, 5.30 p.m. on Mondays. And also, uh, we're recording a podcast uh, for the Harvest website called Jesus' Hands and Feet. But this broadcast is called The Kingdom and Its Stories. And what we try to do uh, in this half an hour is to encourage you, the listener, to be more conscious of the fact that God has called us, Jesus has called us to be him in the lives of the people. And one of the ways we do that is to be Jesus' hands and feet in the lives of other people. And on this interview today, we have Debbie Clifton, who has been involved in the Phoenix area, well, beyond that, but many years in the Phoenix area of mobilizing believers to represent Jesus around the world. Debbie, tell us just briefly, what what are the many, <laughs> many roles that you've had here in the Phoenix area over the last decades? Well, when we moved here, I taught Spanish at a local high school, and then I got very involved at our local church in the formation of our global outreach committee, and it grew. It just took off. So for the past 32 years, I've been involved in that. And for 10 years, I was a volunteer, and then they put me on staff as the paid director of global outreach. And our church sent out 62 families around the world. Wow. Wow. Who is they? Grace Community Church in Tempe, Arizona. In Tempe. Right. Yes. Well, wonderful. Wow. 60-some families. How many countries did those families serve in? Oh, quite a few. I think at the high point we were in 19. Okay. But generally uh, we sent a lot of families to the Middle East and we had some in Africa, some in South America, some in Asia. Wow. Wow. You know, that's, that's almost like your church was a little missions church. 
On the uh, mission, not a little mission church, but a mission agency. It was it was very close to being a mission agency. We were mobilizing our own people and training them, but we did insist that they go out with an agency. And so we would combine them with an agency in the country that they felt called to go. Okay, so a partnership between a local church and mission agencies to send 63 families around the world in 19 countries. That's that's right. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Wow. Deb, um, how did you, you know, how did you grow up in the church? How did you come to Christ? Well, I am a fifth generation missionary. So I grew up in the church. I was there okay. every time the door was open. And my great grandparents planted churches on the Shawnee Reservation in Kansas. So I okay. mean, in the 1880s or whatever. Wow. But wow. Um, my grandparents were workers in Mexico in the late 20s. And then in 1932, the president of Mexico expelled all religious workers, Catholic, Protestant, everyone. And they just crossed the border into Texas, where my dad grew up speaking Spanish as his first language. And then that's where I grew up, speaking Spanish as my first language. So okay. it's it's kind of in my blood. I've lived and breathed it my entire life. <laughs> I would say so. <laughs> but yeah. I didn't actually become a follower of Christ myself until I was 17. Really? Yes. How did, how did that happen? Well, when you grow up in the church, you know too much about what's going on. And there were things that I just, I felt like people weren't treating my father correctly. And I was upset with them. And I was gifted with a very good mind. And I just thought I was too smart for it. I didn't need it. And so I just, I had to be there. I was there every time the church was open. But I was there in a rebellious spirit spirit hmm. my whole life growing up so sounds like a typical mk exactly having exactly. being a being a preacher's kid or a pk mm-hmm. an mk is a missionary kid and we have a lot of similarities right uh, and a, a common experience is growing up as the children of leaders within the within the church so how did it happen that um that changed and i'm well, assuming it changed it did it did I uh, had a full scholarship to Harvard, but my parents insisted that I go to Asbury College in Wilmore, Kentucky, where they had gone, my grandparents had gone, every member of our family that had ever graduated had gone there. So kicking and screaming, I went there. And I found out when I got there, there were a lot of other PKs and MKs that were unhappily there too. And it was actually quite a fun place (laughs) to be. But we had to go to church or to chapel three times a week mandatory attendance. And February 3rd at 10 a.m. in the morning, the Holy Spirit came in an unbelievable way and started the Asbury Revival, which went on 24-7 for a week. We were on the national news. There have been books written about it. The biggest book about it is called One Divine Moment by Robert Coleman. Who I mean, that, that, you're the first person that I've known that was personally involved in the Asbury revival? Well, I was very personally involved in the second hour I decided to ask Christ into my life. I had, it's a long story. I had a feud with the son of an evangelist and we were, we really hated each other. 
And he came over to me and he said, you know, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to pray until I can say that I love you. He said, I may <laughs> never get up, but you should come too. Wow. And we both went down, we prayed, we've loved each other ever since. He ended up being a senator from Kentucky and the head of the International Christian Businessmen's. He's still serving the Lord. And so um, it changed our lives and it changed thousands of other lives. Well, briefly tell us what the impact of the, as you, as you see it, what, what was the impact of that Asbury revival? Well, in the lives of the kids that were there, there were hundreds of kids who, this was 1970, time of just revolt and drug yes, use and I Vietnam remember. and blah, blah, blah. And there were a lot of senior boys who were not believers who were going to be drafted and sent to Vietnam. And there was a group of boys on campus who did know the Lord, who were praying for those boys every morning. Hmm. And that, I believe, is why God chose to come in such a special way. But those of us that were there were changed forever. But the thing is, by the second hour, people were coming in from the neighborhood, then from the state. By the end of the first day, there were people already driving in from Pennsylvania and New York and Tennessee to see what on earth was happening there. How, how did they know about it? It was on the news. From the We had chapel from 10 till 11. And at 11, the dean said, well, I'm the academic dean. The Holy Spirit is obviously here. I'm canceling class at 11. At noon, no one went to the cafeteria. No one left the auditorium. At one, he canceled class at one. And by then, people were calling and the, you know, the cafeteria staff is wondering, why are these 1,200 students not here? And <laughs> it got onto the radio, then it was on the TV. And that night, we were on Walter Cronkite because in other schools, they were having sit-ins in the administrative offices, and we were right. having this gigantic movement of the Holy Spirit. There was never any preaching. We would sing a song, somebody would get up and confess sin, and there would just be dozens of people at the altar asking the Lord into their lives. What a contrast between the political sit-ins at other universities and what was happening at Asbury. Exactly. It was, it was a truly divine and supernatural event. I happened to work in the library as my job. And so I collected all the news accounts that came out. I still have them. We were in all the news media wow. and on the national news, you know, but no one had seen anything like it in many years. The same thing had actually happened at Asbury in 1950, but people had forgotten about it. So wow. it was it was life changing. And from those that I know that were impacted at the school, I don't know of a single one who has fallen away. I'm sure there have to be some, but so many of the rebellious boys in that senior class ended up becoming pastors, evangelists, missionaries. I mean, all of us. It, it just it changed our lives. Deb, I know this isn't what our program is about, but this is so fascinating to me that I'm wondering from your perspective of having been there, was was there something that was a precursor to this? What was it? Was it just a spontaneous move of the Spirit of God? Or it was, were there people praying for this? 
I know for sure that there were at least four boys that were meeting daily to pray for it. But yeah. it was God spontaneously moving. They didn't know what they were praying for. They were just praying for the salvation of their of their classmates. Right. They didn't know right. that anything like this would happen. And that day at chapel, the man who was supposed to, to preach stood up and said, I just feel led to do something different today. We're just going to sing one verse of a hymn and have a testimony. And we did that. And this senior boy who was completely rebellious, sinful, reprobate kid that I knew, he stood up and he said, I went to hall prayer meeting last night for the first time in four years. And I asked Christ to change my life. And he sat down. And we were all just absolutely stunned. Everyone knew that Craig Underwood was a was a big sinner. And then the, we sang one more verse of a song, of a hymn, and another senior boy stood up, and then another, and then another, and we were all just absolutely dumbfounded, because only God could do that. And they all said the exact same thing. They had gone to hall prayer meeting and asked Christ to change their lives. Amazing, amazing. Um, does that say that there's nothing that we can do to bring a revival? It's only the uh, the spontaneous work of the Spirit of God? What do you think? Personally, I know there are people who have written books on what you need to do to cause a revival to come to your church. Right. Personally, I don't think God works that way. I don't mm. think it's an A, B, C, D, and if we check all the boxes, he will come and you will have revival. It. I saw a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Wow. And I've never seen anything like it since. I have prayed for it. I have longed for it. At Asbury, kids have tried to make it happen again. It's never happened again because right. it was a it was a supernatural move of the Holy Spirit. And yeah. by that weekend, the boy I had been having the feud with and me and several others were up in Ohio sharing in Columbus. And we saw the same thing happen at churches. The altars were full, people coming and asking for forgiveness and accepting the Lord. We were 17-year-old kids getting up and just telling what had happened in our lives. That was it. Wow, we were preaching. Wow. It was What, it was what an incredible privilege God gave you, Deb, to be a part of that. It, it was, and I have tried to steward it, and I have shared that story at Christian Women's Clubs and seen results. I shared it two years ago in Brazil and Argentina, and in Argentina, a church, a large church, the pastor just got up and said, I think we need to just open the altar, and people need to just come and confess sin, and before we knew it, they were all, I mean, there was just a movement, and it went on and on. I I can't explain the power of the story, but it is a very powerful story. How how has that experience affected how you have trained um, the 60-some families sent out by your local church? I'm not sure I have an answer for that, except that, I mean, it's totally changed me, but I I have never said, okay, do this or that, and you'll see a revival come. Right. I mean, that's never been part of the training. I have really tried to strongly plead with them to keep their personal walks with the Lord vibrant 
and active and disciplined so that when they're overseas, they don't just become another story of a failure or a dropout or whatever. Because the most important thing is your personal walk with the Lord or you have nothing to share. That's, that's what I say, you know, we're not salesmen, but we only have one product, regardless of where we are. We only have one product and it is Jesus. And the only way we can present Jesus in a way that is appealing and attractive is if he has made a difference in our lives. If we live just like the rest of the world, well, then who cares? Why would I want to accept Jesus? Why would I want to do it? So Deb, then what is, what, what, then is the the mark of living like Jesus, of being like Jesus? Well, I believe it is sacrificial love. That yeah. is what sets you apart. If you're living for Jesus, you're not living to get famous. You're not living to get rich. You're not living to take advantage of your neighbor. You are trying to help your neighbor and love your neighbor as yourself. For those of you who are listening, I, I just want to remind you that we're um, listening to a half an hour of the kingdom and its stories. And we have the privilege and the honor of having Debbie Clifton with us today. And she's sharing her testimony of how God drew her as a fifth generation missionary kid um, to um, to himself, and we've been learning a story about uh, the Asbury uh, College revival uh, that happened in 1970. 1970, February third. Nineteen seventy, and uh, and and trying to discover what are some of the principles that have come out of Deb's life in and in the fact that God has called her to mobilize more than, well, not more than, but 63 families that were sent all around the world from her local church uh, in Tempe, Arizona. Deb, um, would it be right to summarize what you have said by saying that um, what we're looking for is not moves of God's spirit and then responding to that, but obedience, no matter no matter what we you know, what we see or what we experience in other other places, whether we're a part of an Asbury revival or not, what God is calling us to is to live like Jesus Christ uh, and, to, and, and to keep our lives so that when people look at us, they see a difference. Exactly. Exactly. What are some stories that you could tell us that would help us to understand what that might look like in practical experience, either some of the 63 family stories that you have or, you know, stories out of your own life. Well, I, I do call people and challenge them with God's call to live sacrificially. So when we send people overseas, we're asking them as much as they can to try to live like the people on the same level as the people they're trying to reach. Right. And obviously we're not sending anybody to live in a dirt hut anymore or, you know, to drink polluted water, but 
Well, that's a disappointment. I thought that was what missionaries did. No, no, that is not what they do. We're asking them to take care of themselves and their families too, but not to, if the people they're working with don't have cars, then they should walk and ride a bike and ride the bus too. They should try to sacrificially live the way the people they're working with live. And they shouldn't be, you know, in a nicer home and they, you know, they should just as much as they can identify with those that they're trying. You mean, you mean no more American compounds surrounded by walls? No. And I can proudly say that we have never had a worker from our church that's lived in a compound. I mean, that's, that is somewhat from a previous generation, although it does still happen in some places. But no, that's just totally counterproductive in today's world. And in today's world where everyone, even in the most remote places, I I was in Kenya on a three-hour ride on a rutted road, and we got there, and they said, you are in the first vehicle to ever arrive in this village. And I said, man, I didn't think I would ever get here either. So we're in church (laughs) in this remote, remote village. And suddenly a cell phone goes off. (laughs) And I looked at the lady that was with me and I said, what does that sound like to you? And she said, it sounds like a cell phone. And I said, we're not at the end of the earth, but we can see it. Who has a cell phone here? (laughs) And the chief was the only person in town who had a cell phone, but this village happened to be between two mountains, both of which had cell towers on it. And so the chief did what people do here. He walked out of church talking out loud on his cell phone. And I said to my companion, I said, this just shows you that no matter what you do or where you are, someone is going to be following you, watching you, seeing you, and you need to live in a way that is just completely above reproach. Even in the most remote areas, there there is no place anymore on this earth where you can hide and go out and have your little fiefdom. No, people will be watching you. They will see what you're doing. And if it doesn't look Christ-like, they will not be attracted to it. Amen. Amen. That's that's a bit scary. Um, it is it is quite scary. It is quite scary. But if we are living to honor Christ, why would we be afraid? Right. Exactly. And there are places where you have to be more careful in what you say and how you do things. But still, the inner peace in your life should shine out regardless of what you can say or do. Yeah, and that peace expresses itself in I'm trying to repeat what you said in sacrificial love. Exactly. What? O- obeying Christ will cause you to sacrificially love others. Right. What, 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 what would be an example of that? Sacrificially loving others. Okay. I have, I have a couple right now. I, I'm, I'm retired, so I'm no longer in charge of anyone. But even myself, sometimes I wonder about. But <laughs> I um, helped to train and raise up this couple and go. And they are now in the jungle, in the country of Cameroon, working with pygmies. 
And this is, it's that we shouldn't really use that word anymore, the Baku people. But this is a young couple, young married couple. They are sacrificing everything, the jobs they could have here, the health they could have here, to be there to help these people and show them what Christ is like. And she wrote this past week and she said, I had a baby die in my arms. And she said, I'm just having trouble getting over that. I don't know how to deal with that. A sick wow. baby that died in her arms. But she's there sacrificially putting herself in that situation where they're also having a wave of illness. And I said, are you all trying to protect yourselves? Well, they are, but they could die there. Not yep. that I ever want to see one of my we have 30 die. seconds left. Oh. Um, but I just want to um, to say um, and conclude by by saying that we um, sometimes we think we have to be a missionary in Cameroon to sacrificially love others, mm -mm. and I just want to remind everyone uh, that's listening that. God doesn't call us all to go to to Cameroon. What he calls us to is to sacrificial love wherever mm -hmm. we are. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, people are drawn to Jesus. But at the same time as sacrificially loving others, we need to live in a way that shows that there's no inconsistency between what we say and how we live. Thank you, Deb. Jesus defines discipleship as come and follow me. Next Monday at 5.30 p.m. on Faith Talk 1360, we'll hear another testimonial from a leader demonstrating how they and the people of the church are sacrificially loving the needy and beginning to see real change in their communities. If you have a personal example of how you are being the hands and feet of Jesus with your neighbors, we'd love to hear from you. Enter your story at harvestfoundation.org. That's harvestfoundation.org on the Contact Us tab. You can also subscribe to the podcast on The Kingdom and Its Stories on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.